Welcome to Digital Detectives, reports from the battlefront. We'll discuss computer forensics, electronic discovery, and information security issues and what's really happening in the trenches. Not theory, but practical information that you can use in your law practice, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the 124th edition of Digital Detectives. We're glad to have you with us. I'm Sharon Nelson, president of Sensei Enterprises, a digital forensics, cybersecurity, and information technology firm in Fairfax, Virginia. And I'm John Simic, vice president of Sensei Enterprises. Today on Digital Detectives, our topic is cybersecurity priorities for President Biden. Before we get started, I'd like to thank our sponsor, PINow.com. If you need a private investigator you can trust, visit PINow.com to learn more. Today, we are lucky to have as our guest, Stuart Baker, who practices law at Steptoe & Johnson in Washington, D.C. From 2005 to 2009, he was the first assistant secretary for policy at the Department of Homeland Security. His law practice covers cybersecurity, data protection, homeland security, and travel and foreign investment regulation. He's been awarded one patent. Mr. Baker has been general counsel of the National Security Agency and general counsel of the commission that investigated WND intelligence failures prior to the Iraq War. He's the author of Skating on Stilts, a book on terrorism, cybersecurity, and other technology issues. He also hosts the weekly CyberLaw podcast. It's great to have you back with us again, Stuart. <laughs> oh, it's great to be back with you guys. Well, we really do thank you for coming. And before we get started on what President Biden is and should be doing with respect to cybersecurity, talk to us a little bit about cybersecurity under the Trump administration. Well, you know, it was typical of the Trump administration. Uh, a lot of good things got done, and most of them got done when the president wasn't paying attention to them. Uh, <laughs> it's just I hate to say that I'm not a Trump hater, but I I think we all acknowledge that his attention sometimes detracted from the government's ability to get stuff done. And you know, when he paid attention, he was he was a mixed force. He was willing to take on China and the Chinese. Um, uh, supply chain and to take tough action about very important things that needed to be done about China inducing a reliance by the United States on insecure technology. He was not at all willing to take on Russia and some of the things that Russia did to both interfering in the 2016 election and the hacking that they engaged in. So when it got to his level, it was a mixed bag. But below him, uh, the DHS really came into its own as a uh, cybersecurity agency, and it did very good work on uh, election security for the 2020 election, which, of course, you know, the, the mixed bag again, got the head of um, DHS's cybersecurity agency fired when he said, no, the election was secure. Interesting, because those were the times that we just lived through. Um, and, <laughs> and, and, and then there has been kind of a swing to a, a whole new approach to cybersecurity. Yes, it's going to be less, a lot more boring, but a, a lot more is probably going to get done. <laughs> I'll take boring. Well, 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 Stuart, I, I know you don't lack for opinions, but what, what, do, what do you think was President Biden inherit as his biggest cybersecurity problem? 
I think solar winds is probably the most pressing mm. issue just because I, and it's not fair to call it solar winds. Uh, uh, we should probably call it holiday bear. It was probably Russian intelligence uh, and they were very, very good at what they did about breaking mm -hmm. into some very high profile targets who were quite sophisticated in their own defense and they beat a bunch of them. That's impressive and scary and it requires that we rethink what we have been doing for security, especially for the federal government, which probably wasn't in a position to stop this, even if these guys had been a little less sophisticated, but certainly wasn't in a position to stop these intrusions at this level of sophistication. And the government's going to have to up its game. And it's probably going to have to take action to make sure that the critical infrastructure we care about has upped its game in response to the uh, holiday bear intrusions. You know, a lot of folks listening to us, they won't even know what solar winds means. So maybe you could just briefly explain that to them. So, yes, it, it was actually first discovered by FireEye when FireEye, uh, a particular security guy, uh, got a request to have a second phone be used as two-factor authentication to say, yes, this is this person checking in and getting onto the network. And he had time to call the guy and say, really, you've got a second phone? To which the uh, employee said, no, I don't. And that little call oh. and that fact led to the discussion Discovery that FireEye had had uh, sophisticated Russian intelligence operatives inside its network for months, and that they had broken in in part by compromising Microsoft files, that they had done so at a level of sophistication that we had not seen before, uh, uh, the kind of discipline that no one expected, even from the cream of the crop. That means that we have to rethink how tough our cybersecurity practices have to be. And I, you know, I'm, I guarantee that very few people who are listening to this have cybersecurity folks working for them who call everybody who tries to get another phone uh, <laughs> accepted for two-factor authentication. But increasingly, it looks as though that's what we're going to have to do. It's very scary, some of the tradecraft that they used. We've gotten used to the idea that once we've logged on, we can move out to cloud services, and the cloud services will know who we are because, let's say, Microsoft has already vouched for us. We've already logged on. And the other party trusts Microsoft's credentials, but these guys got good at faking credentials and indeed at persuading the entire ecosystem that the Russian government could vouch for particular employees of FireEye or SolarWinds. And so the entire system of digital authentication, the, the uh, authentication markup language is enormously powerful and easily abused, and these folks got really good at abusing it. Pretty uh, frightening, isn't it, that they, they quote, stumbled onto that? And <laughs> imagine if they didn't, where we would be today. <laughs> they, had been go they had been getting away with it for months. Yes. Uh, yes. And, and very carefully, they, they deliberately did not use their 
access for much. They were looking for just the right people. They only wanted the CEO or the CFO and the and the chief security officer. And so they didn't compromise anybody else. They were tiptoeing through uh, mm. uh, fields that uh, uh, most hackers drive trucks through. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm pretty sure we're going to see solar winds in movie form at some point. Um, but knowing that that is indeed the biggest the biggest breach we have seen, and uh, in, in some time, and particularly of of governmental uh, agencies and organizations, what else did President Biden inherit as other security problems? So I, I think there are a couple that I would identify. One, the supply chain. And this is something, you know, the, the fact is that much of our digital, especially the lower value digital equipment that we rely on, comes from China. And it comes in some cases from Chinese companies uh, uh, that are entirely beholden to the Chinese Communist Party and will do whatever they're told to do. And so the possibility that our equipment is subverted from below is very real. And finding a way to make sure that one, the equipment we buy only works for us and not for our adversary is important. And uh, second, that when we need it, we'll, we'll be able to buy it because the Chinese have already begun to indicate that if they can cut off supplies of oh, uh, pharmaceutical precursors in a time of COVID, or if they can cut off rare earths exports to the United States, which all of our tech sectors rely on, and, and get diplomatic concessions, they'll do it. And so we need to make sure that we're not dependent on them for both of those reasons. Those are problems that President Trump in his very, um, he would wake up in the morning and, and, and take a stab at the problem. And then you wouldn't hear of anything about it for a couple of months. And then suddenly there'd be a new executive order out. He did a lot of that, but he did not have a very robust and comprehensive and disciplined approach to that. What we're seeing with this administration is they've already put out an executive order that says, we are going in the next 100 days, we want plans on several topics. And then at the end of a year, we want a whole new set of additional plans. Uh, um, so I think I tweeted that President Trump would have done this some Sunday morning before golf. And this is a little slow, but we'll probably get a better, more thought through outcome out of the supply chain executive order that uh, President Biden has put together. That was one of them. And, and then the other problem that I think is really just emerging in the last couple of weeks, uh, though it's been around a while, is attacks on the grid the Russians have been in our grid for a while now, and we were very unhappy about that. Probably became clear that they were in the grid in the Trump administration. And of course, uh, saying mean things about Russia wasn't on uh, the president's agenda at the time, but it is a hostile act. There's no espionage reason to be in our grid. The only reason to be in our grid is to keep alive the option of turning off the electricity for everybody in the country. And uh, since Russia has done that in Ukraine twice, I think we have to take seriously the threat that that represents. And the rumor is that we are now all in their grid, precisely to return the favor in terms of projecting a threat. That's scary enough, but now it turns out that the Chinese are acting against India's grid, 
They may well have already carried out a uh, electrical uh, short for Mumbai, cut off the power in Mumbai as a result of the fight that uh, we saw on the border up in the Himalayas. Shortly after that, there are uh, reports that large amounts of malware was aimed at India's grid, and then there was a blackout in Mumbai. Maybe that's a coincidence, but it's also highly likely that it was uh, China sending a message to India to say, if you keep causing military problems in the Himalayas, you could have power problems at home. And this is a long process of normalizing attacks on our electrical systems, which none of us can really afford to, to live with for very long. Mm-hmm. Well, well, Stuart, what do you think about the people that the president's chosen to, to lead his new cybersecurity teams? I know most of them, and I have great respect for them. Ann Newberger is now the Deputy National Security Advisor for Cyber. That's by far the highest ranking position that anybody in the White House has ever been given on uh, cybersecurity. Uh, uh, She comes out of NSA. She's a very thoughtful and polished member of the government with a lot of non-government experience as well. So she's definitely a a talent. Another uh, NSA'er, Jen Easterly, is going to come in. She may end up there's a lot of uncertainty about how the, these jobs are going to be organized because Congress has, has weighed in. But Jen Easterly may end up running the cybersecurity unit that Congress imagined would be the entire thing for the White House, but which almost certainly will not be. Mike Solmeyer is going to be in the National Security Advisor. Uh, he's worked at DOD. Uh, he's uh, uh, been up at Harvard. He's very talented. Uh, uh, Rob Silvers at DHS will take over from the guy that uh, President Trump fired, and he's done this already in the Obama administration. Tim Moore, the same. So they've got a lot of people that I like and respect. Mm-hmm. Uh, who will be taking on these issues? It'll be a, a you know a regular government in a way that that we didn't see in the Trump administration. Well, go team! I'm liking the sound <laughs> of all that. <laughs> well, before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick commercial break. Does your law firm need an investigator for a background check, civil investigation, or other type of investigation? PINow.com is a -a one-of-a-kind resource for locating investigators anywhere in the U.S. and worldwide. The professionals listed on PINow understand the legal constraints of an investigation, are up-to-date on the latest technology, and have extensive experience in many types of investigation, including workers' compensation and surveillance. Find a pre-screened private investigator today. Visit www.pinow.com. Welcome back to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Today, our topic is cybersecurity priorities for President Biden. Our guest is Stuart Baker, who practices law at Steptoe & Johnson in Washington, D.C. From 2005 to 2009, he was the first Assistant Secretary for Policy at the Department of Homeland Security. His law practice covers cybersecurity, data protection, homeland security, and travel and foreign investment regulation, and he has been awarded one patent. So, Stuart, do you think that President Biden's made a credible start on addressing cybersecurity so far? 
I think he has. I mean, no one expects him to know a lot about cybersecurity. He entered the Senate, I think, before the internet was invented, or at least before it uh, was commercialized. (laughs) Before Gore Uh, was there, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So it's, it's not natural to him. He's not a native, but he certainly appreciates national security threats, and he appreciates the politics, the bad politics of having a major energy outage, for example. So he has begun work on cybersecurity priorities. His executive order on the supply chain is exactly what you would like to see. And the hard question and the real judgment will come when he has to make decisions that somebody else doesn't like. And then we'll see whether cybersecurity is being valued or whether it's just getting lip service. Well, you know, he's he's really not had much time in, obviously. So right. um, I'm, I'm hesitant to be anything but thankful that he has made the progress he has uh, because it hasn't been very long. But what has he done to date that you would have that you've applauded? And is there anything that he's done that you wouldn't applaud? So I think he, he uh, has done a, a, as I said, a good job coming up with the supply chain order. What I wouldn't applaud is I think he's kind of said, why don't we take a nice leisurely stroll to a conclusion, uh, asking for decisions at the end of a year. I'm sure that it will feel like everybody's working really hard for a year to come up with what they come up with. But if they had been told to come up with it in six months, they worked would have worked just as hard and come up with something that was almost as good. So uh, I think he probably could have shown a little more concern for getting this stuff done fast. I think he's been focused maybe on on COVID so much, and and he's done so much with getting the vaccine here. I I, I suspect that may have been something that just delayed efforts in other places. That could could easily be. We will not know how he's doing for a while. I agree with you on that. But as I say, I would would like it if he said, this is a crisis and I'm not going to give you a year to figure out uh, what to do about it. The other thing that he's done, and this is a continuation of something that Trump did and, you know, the politics being what they are, it's hard for President Biden to keep anything that President Trump did. But he appears to be keeping an order that President Trump put in place, executive order, I think, 13873, which essentially said the president uh, and by delegation, the Secretary of Commerce, can designate any piece of technology or company that goes into our information and communications technology infrastructure and comes from a hostile nation as a product we don't want in our infrastructure. And that will be binding on the private sector. This is an authority that no one thought well, the the government didn't think it had back in the Obama administration, and they allowed a lot of stuff from China to be installed because they didn't think they could stop it. And President Trump just said, well, I've, I'm going to write an executive order that uh, stops it. Uh, he did. He, he didn't apply it very much, and his application of it was idiosyncratic. But it is a valuable tool in the new kind of competition we're in with China over technology and national security. And the administration has sent a signal that it's going to keep that authority, keep those regulations in place. They will probably take comments and adjust them. But I thought it took a little bit of courage to say, we are not getting rid of everything that has Trump's signature on it. 
Well, Stuart, we all know money makes the world go round. So is it going to be hard for, for President Biden to get the kind of money he's, he's really going to need to fund the cybersecurity measures that are being contemplated? Yeah, I think if it's not in the COVID relief bill, he's not going to get it. That's my guess. That we, we have gone to a system, really, for the last 10 years or so, of funding stuff in spasms. I'm guessing that the basic structure of the budget was set in the last couple of years of the Obama administration it hasn't been changed because there hasn't been there haven't been enough votes in Congress to actually change any of the priorities except in big lumps of money like the 2008-2009 stimulus and the CARES Act and now maybe this latest bill. There is, as I remember right, I think maybe the CARES Act originally had $10 billion in it for CISA, that is to say DHS's civilian cybersecurity entity to spend on cybersecurity. That's probably not money. That's that's not more money than is needed because what we're going to see, I believe, is a pretty dramatic centralization of cybersecurity responsibilities at DHS. They haven't been able to do that. You know, most companies to have one CISO, the federal government has 50. Uh, you got a CISO for every department and every independent agency, and it's money in their budget. It's people that work for them. They don't want to give that up, but some of them are good and some of them are terrible at doing this. And if one of them is terrible, they can infect the rest. So DHS is probably going to have to take some action to start setting more and more floors for cybersecurity providing more and more cybersecurity services that previously we'd relied on company on each individual agency to decide to buy. And that will certainly use up big chunks of that 10 billion. Yeah, it sure will, but it will hopefully make sure we get rid of some very bad CISOs too. Oh. <laughs> yeah, so well, that, that's a good objective. We have to get used to the idea that this is an extraordinarily expensive thing, that uh, the digital infrastructure we are substituting delivers all of its benefits in the first year, and the price doesn't show up until four or five years later, and it's a lot bigger than you thought it was going to be. All right, and, and on that uh, note... <laughs> Uh, I'm not sure that people who don't want to see the government spending more money are going to be happy with that, but it, it is a necessity to be sure. Do you have, number one, any final thoughts? And number two, how can people listen to your podcast that you do with your law firm? And is there a favorite episode from the recent months that you'd like to call out? Yeah, why don't I do two? One is about an issue that I think your audience will be really interested in, and the other is just an episode I really loved. Uh, we just finished an episode in which we usually do a news roundup and then an interview or some longer feature. And the longer feature in the one we just finished is a uh, an exchange I had with a high-ranking Justice Department official about the OFAC advisory that said you know, you can't pay ransomware to Evil Corp and uh, the uh, North Koreans because we have sanctioned them and you're not allowed to have any dealings with them at all. And if you do, we will punish you. And to boot, if your forensic firm 
gives you bad advice and says, oh yeah, these are this is not Drydex. This is not Evil Corp. And it turns out that you uh, paid them on the strength of that advice. They could be liable for facilitating a violation of federal law. So I'm, I'm a little skeptical of this whole approach to ransomware, but it is the law. And so we, we talk in detail about what might trigger liability for insurers, for forensics firms, for people who are doing attribution of uh, a particular form of ransomware, and then, of course, for the victims. So that's something that, that people might find useful as an education and maybe a little bit of reason to, to worry about their practice in dealing with ransomware. But the one I really loved um, was the one before that, where we interviewed the author of a book about Elizabeth Friedman, who was married to a pretty famous cryptographer named William Friedman, who was the intellectual founder of the National Security Agency. It's the story of the two of them because she was, by his estimation, at least as good a cryptographer or a cryptanalyst as he was. Mm -hmm. And the story of how they got started with this lunatic, he wasn't a billionaire, but he was close. He was a, a, a very rich man out in Chicago who yep. recruited Friedman to come to his weird compound near Chicago where he was working on a project to find secret code written by Sir Francis Bacon in the works of Shakespeare to prove that he and not Shakespeare had written it and deliver a whole set of messages. And it, the, the theory was that he had been varying typography of the particular yeah. uh, text. And they end up doing all of the government's decryption for World War I out of this unit. Mm -hmm. So these two, these two people with no training are suddenly the entire national security agency for the U.S. government. Uh, it's a great story. I've read that book. It's, it is wonderful. <laughs> yes. It's, it's called The Woman Who Smashed Codes. Well, Stuart, as always, we want to thank you for coming back and being with us again. It's always a joy, always a, a you know a really nice conversation about cybersecurity, and your insights are, are always wonderful to share with our audience. So thank you again for being here today. I'm always glad to come back and talk to both of you. Well, that does it for this edition of Digital Detectives. And remember, you can subscribe to all the editions of this podcast at LegalTalkNetwork.com or on Apple Podcasts. And if you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. And you can find out more about Sensei's digital forensics, technology, and cybersecurity services at senseient.com. We'll see you next time on Digital Detectives. Thanks for listening to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Check out some of our other podcasts on LegalTalkNetwork.com and in iTunes.